to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 24th of October 2019, and I am missing my brother once again, who is the other host of the show, Daryl. He's back in Scotland. I'm still in LA, and we haven't managed to make our time zones tie in to our schedule, but this should be the last show I bring to you by myself at the start, uh, because in a week's time, we will be back in the same country in the same time zone. Uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back and catching up with him because I haven't spoken to him since he came back from Tanzania and that trip looked epic. We've got a great podcast for you today. Uh, we have a guest on the show who has been on before, Mr. Charles Post, the ecology editor of Modern Huntsman. He is a Berkeley trained ecologist uh, as well as a filmmaker and a storyteller. Uh, I think the last time he was on Rather randomly, the conversation started with 20 minutes about bees, which was fascinating. Uh, on this show, we're going to dive into a whole manner of things, uh, from climate change to salmon populations, both in North America and closer to home. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Volume 4 and his contribution for that, as well as the, the interaction between uh, hunters and non-hunters and how we can work better together. I was fortunate enough to catch up with Charles uh, not only in his um, home state of Montana, but actually at his home uh, with Tyler Sharp, who is editor-in-chief of Modern Huntsman, uh, we sat down, uh, down together to have this conversation. And the only thing that I regret is that we didn't have more time because I had to get on a plane the day that Charles came back. We had a lot of uh, crossovers where he was arriving and I was leaving or we had meetings and then he was gone, but we finally managed to catch him. And uh, when we rocked up to his house, he was fast asleep on the floor of his lounge uh, because he has a brand new puppy who you are going to hear in this podcast squeaking a toy at one point. Uh, so he had been doing uh, puppy daddy duties in the middle of the night and so was unconscious when we arrived. Uh, but a great chat as always. Um, Charles is a very insightful person and I'm sure that you're all going to enjoy it. But before we get to the interview, um, I've got a couple of things to mention. First and foremost, thank you for all the entries for the animal sound from two weeks ago. I think that's possibly been the most entries we've had, and it wasn't even to win a prize, but you all took part. So thank you. It's great to hear from everybody. And the sound from two weeks ago was a bugling elk from Wyoming. So I thought I would keep it relevant to where I was at the time. Okay, I was in Montana, but it wasn't that far away where that recording came from. And of course, I'm going to be bringing you a new sound now. But this sound is going to be tied to a competition for this show to win a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, all about wildlife management. Modern Huntsman are our partners on this podcast. We have been involved with them from the very, very beginning when they started their Kickstarter almost two years ago. And the reason that I've been in Montana for the last month and in the States has been working with Tyler Sharp, who was on the last podcast with me, is on this one and is on a couple of podcasts yet to come out, uh, getting ready for volume four. And you're going to be hearing from some of the people over the next uh, month or two who have contributed to Volume 4 and what they've been writing about. Charles contributed uh, to Volume 4, and you're going to hear about that in, in this show. It's great to be working with them more closely in partnership with the podcast, and, it's, and in our mind, it's just a, a brilliant synergy. So anyway, the sound. 
which I am just about to play for you, this is what you need to tell us uh, before the next show, is what animal is making this sound. So there you go. Contact us via social media through Instagram, which is a lot of you have done, Pace underscore Brothers, uh, on Facebook, um, Pace Brothers, or our Into the Wilderness page as well. Or you can email us, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Tell us what animal that was. Uh, we will stick all the correct entries together and randomly pick a winner, and we will send out a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, to you. Now, excitingly... Volume 4 is finally available for pre-order. If you have been waiting to secure your copy, now is the time to do it. Head over to the Modern Huntsman website, fire Modern Huntsman into the old Google, and it will come up and you'll be able to order your copy there. If you know that you're in the UK and Europe, then it'll take you through our website, thepacebrothers.com, and pre-orders for Volume 4 are also available there. With any luck, we will be getting those copies out to you towards the end of November, as it stands right now. It is in the final stages. It has been very exciting working on it over here uh, with an incredible group of women. Uh, Even the front cover has been released now, so you can go and check that out on Instagram. It's the latest thing uh, that I posted just a couple of days ago. Now, I don't have a winner for the competition that we've been running over the last three shows yet because I need to sit down and have a conversation with the guys at Spartan Precision. So just to remind you, we were asking everybody uh, if you were to give money as a a company to a conservation-based on-the-ground organization who is making a real difference where would you where would you put that money? And the reason we were asking is because our friends at Spartan Precision uh, want to give two percent of their profits to conservation, and they don't know where to put it. So we've been we put this question to all of our listeners, and we've had some fantastic responses. Uh, we've collected them all together now. We're going to sit down with Rob and the team and go through them. And somebody who gave us a suggestion will win not only a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman, uh, but also their choice of Spartan position bipod for uh, their rifle. Uh, An incredible prize, and thank you very much to everybody who contributed to let us know where you think that money should go. And congratulations to Rob and the team at Spartan Position for really tackling an important issue, putting their money where their mouth is, and trying to make a difference. I can only hope that more companies in the hunting industry around the world will follow suit. Now, I mentioned in the show that I'd been listening to a podcast talking about the amount of chemicals required to dye fabric. I couldn't find the exact episode, but the podcast that I was listening to was Inside Science, which is a BBC podcast. Absolutely brilliant. It goes without saying, incredibly well produced. It's very concise. And I've been listening to it for a couple of years now. And if you like sciencey type things, then I encourage you to go over and and add that to your podcast list. Lastly, but absolutely not least, just before we get into the show, a big thank you to our top tier patrons, who include James Marchington, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, John Henry Pete, Chris Griffith, Richard Stevens, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, and uh, our newest contribution to the top tier, James Benjamin Normandale. Thank you very much to every single one of you and all of our patrons, because there is a whole list of people who also contribute, and it is all massively appreciated. If you would like to help us produce this show, 
uh, head over to the Pace Brothers on Patreon. Um, there's four or five different tiers, and every pound makes a difference. And we were getting very close to collecting our first target, which was 20 patrons. So with all that said, um, I hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. And this one particular article, which I believe was published in the New York Times maybe a month ago now, might have been an op-ed. Anyhow, it talked about how this attention we're paying to plastic is is taking our eyes away from the real elephant in the room, which is climate change. Mm. So to your point... I read that as well, actually. So it begs the question of, you know, is it better to burn it, keep the plastic out of the ocean or waterways or ecosystem and put whatever the noxious off gases are into the atmosphere, Yeah, perhaps contributing to... Further climate change. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. But... I mean, climate change, we can't... It's not tangible. You can't see it, but right. the plastic shit you see. Right, right. Well, and I mean, there's studies now that are finding that there's micro microplastics in everywhere our, in our air. I mean, I just read a uh, little study like two or three days ago. I was on a flight that looked at, um, you know, those fancy tea bags that are like the pyramids. Yeah, that every time you drop one of those in a cup of tea, they're plastic. You something like a thousand bits of microplastics end your up in cup. your tea. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. So you're ingesting. I mean, was it just the pyramid ones though? No, that was just an example. But I yeah. think most. I think most tea bags have plastic in them. Yeah, I read that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So drink a lot of tea. Uh, yeah, the Brits <laughs> are going to be. I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. I think it's a. I mean, I think climate change is like the future, right? Like that has the future of concern. The, well, it's like the future of the planet. I think is being dictated going to be influenced by this climate change issue. I think plastic is maybe a little bit more of a near-term issue. Like people are being affected significantly today as in, as they are by climate change in certain places more and more. Um, but yeah, I don't know. One's just, yeah, one's more tangible. I think people like see it. They can pick up a piece on the, on the beach. Yeah, it's unsightly. Yeah. But I think it's really, I think plastic is cool because it's getting people to connect with impact. Environmental impact, yeah. Yeah, so even if even if they don't necessarily believe in climate change or haven't adopted a lifestyle that has the ecosystem in mind, getting somebody to pick up a piece of plastic is like a great step in the right direction. And I think that shift hopefully gets more people thinking about, you know, other ways to engage with environmental issues. I think that was a great intro to the podcast. Welcome, welcome back, Charles. <laughs> yes, it's good to be here. Thanks for, uh, for I, I guess I was sleeping on a, a, yeah, a gentle so, awakening. <laughs> so when we arrived at Charles's house, uh, there was nobody to answer the door, and we peeked through the, the the window at the top, and there's an unconscious body on the <laughs> carpet of his lounge, and this little fluff ball looking up at the door, <laughs> lounging, laying, <laughs> looking at us like definitely not doing guard dog duties. <laughs> Anyways, new puppy for new puppy. you and Rachel, yeah, yeah. So we're exhausted, but. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun. Cute it's dog. so sweet. Yeah, yeah, he's. It was funny because she said we're getting a dog, and I was like, "Oh, great! When? Oh, um, like in two days." I was like, "Oh, so we have it. So we own. We own. <laughs> we, the, we have, have the, the dog. dog. <laughs> okay, we're doing this. Let's go." There's a slight difference there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but it's been good. It's nice to have you here. I feel uh, like Skype just doesn't do justice. It doesn't. Yeah, you know, we've we've missed each other a couple of times, and you missed my bro. We were just saying this before we uh, started recording. You missed my brother by like thirty minutes in an airport oh in Norway. Gosh. Yeah, <laughs> in a super odd, like tiny airport in Norway. Yeah, he was so. going to a wedding. He was going to a wedding. Yeah, yeah and I think I was coming back to Oslo. Yeah, yeah. 
What were you doing in Norway? We were up there. We had a little bit of work earlier in the summer, and then we stayed for about a month for our kind of like a honeymoon. So we did some fishing and hiking and, uh, yeah, saw some huge moose, which was pretty fun. You like Norway? Love Norway. Yeah. Yeah. I think I like it most because people, regardless of the weather, they just put on their coats and get in the mountains. You know, everybody's, doesn't matter what the weather's doing. There's If you didn't have that attitude there, you would never go outside. It's a little bit like Scotland. If you're afraid of the weather, right? you'll basically spend your entire life inside your house. And I feel like there's a little bit of that mindset for people who don't live in Montana, who hear about Montana. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, it must be nice. I'm like, yeah, you know, fall's like pretty cool. Pretty nice. Except that we didn't get one. Except we didn't get one. It rained all summer. And then all we were driving on the way here, almost all the leaves are brown and are about to fall off. They right. never even got the chance to turn yellow right and then what this morning i was the reason i was lying motionless on the floor when you just got here so i woke up at you know 5 15 taking the puppy out and it was felt like in the negatives yeah it was certainly really close to zero yeah you know until what october 11th yeah. yeah so not a good sign yeah but hey i think it builds character right <laughs> yeah lots of character and a big wardrobe <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. and a nice <laughs> utility bill <laughs> so we've been uh we've been working on volume four Ron Huntsman all week. You've been involved since the very start. Uh, I think we probably talked to you on the podcast when Volume Two was coming out. I think, I think possibly. S- yeah, I think that was about right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's your uh, what's been your take and contribution for Volume Four? What can people expect when they when they open it up? I mean, I already know the answer to that question, but I want everyone yeah. else to know because I looked at your article yesterday or the day before. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been really fun. I mean, I think just I was on the f- a flight home last night kind of reflecting on Modern Huntsman. And I remember when Tyler, because we like knew of each other, I think yeah. familiar, with, familiar with one another's work and you were visiting Montana and, you know, sent me like nine text messages in an hour and you're like, I'm in town, come visit, coffee on me. And I sat down and I just, I remember looking at the 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 Kickstarter brief and just so many things clicked. And I think you and I immediately just realized how much synergy was there and i immediately realized that the narrative and the things that we were pushing to address and illuminate modern huntsman were so pressing things that i i know i had a feeling that like our community would just be stoked about so seeing modern huntsman grow one two and three awesome the reception's been incredible it's really fun to contribute and then four, you know, this shift to the women's issue with a women-led team, uh, mostly women contributors, exclusively on women uh, in terms of subject matter. Yeah. Um, I think and I thought when it was proposed is just such a important issue because there are so many amazing women that we all know about and know of and have hunted with and spent time with. So to give them that kind of place to showcase and honor the contribution to stewardship and the hunting harvesting community i thought was like a really kind of perfect thing for 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 volume four so my without sharing too much um i worked on a an interview in a series of portraits which i was really excited about um looking at Birgit cameron who's the the head of patagonian provisions um, just a really brilliant woman who has a really uh, close connection with stewardship, uh, especially with food and soil and, and kind of feeding people. 
and then in turn getting people to think more deeply about the ecosystems that sustain us, wild and um, working landscapes. So that's really cool. And I was able to shoot portraits of her at a place, at a farm uh, that's nestled within uh, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in California. It's a place I went, I was like a two and three year old with my grandmother to like milk goats and make paper and feed chickens. So it was really cool to like come back there and take these images and just kind of think about what a place like that has done for me and so many other young people to expose them to food and yeah, working landscapes and biodiversity, um, especially within a stone's throw of a big city like San Francisco. So that, that I'm really excited about. And then, yeah, in terms of like a longer story, um, the one I chose to really focus on is a piece about two bighorn sheep biologists. Um, they both do their work in the Hell's Canyon watershed, which is kind of like the Oregon, Washington, Idaho confluence there. Uh, the Snake River goes through Hell's Canyon. And we are working on a film, a, a group of friends, like Phil Baraboo, who made Unbranded. Oh, really? It's kind of the, he's, right. he's the director of it. Yeah. And then Adam Foss is, is one of the uh, the shooters. Uh, and then Frankie's helping us with, with production. Um, so we've been out working with people who are uh, connected to this conflict between domestic sheep production and wild sheep conservation because domestic sheep carry a disease called MOV, which is, I would argue, the principal driver of bighorn declines in their range. And it's a highly contagious um, disease that doesn't really affect domestics too much. They do lose some body condition, uh, which is an issue, obviously, for producers. Um, but it's something that can be treated or at least uh, doesn't cause mass mortality. Um, but once it gets into wild populations, it's devastating, devastating. And then also, and I didn't really get into it in the story because you could write, uh, people have written books about just the complexity of the disease, but this disease, if you look at it on a, um, this researcher showed us a, a wheel and basically it's like a, think of it as like a, a web of life or a, a family tree, if you will. And, you know, you have like a, a, a basal node, which is like the, the original strain and then you have all the offshoots that have mutated and deviated and it's hundreds so when you think about addressing a disease issue in a wild population you see the same symptoms show up in a population say in montana and texas and in maybe south dakota but each population and perhaps different individuals within the population have different strains so you couldn't necessarily even treat it if you could right and that they come to fruition different ways. So sometimes it's, you know, it affects them maybe uh, at an early age. Sometimes it's early onset or it's later onset. They're finding now that uh, adult females can be these um, source individuals. So they'll carry, basically the disease will exist within them, but it doesn't affect them as much. So they might have a few symptoms, but it's not mortal. So then they're this low level kind of, agent of disease giving it to everything passing it along wow and then historically with bighorn sheep uh conservation and and, and wildlife management in general across north america europe africa you know we have this uh this history of relocating individuals to bolster populations from source to sink populations so what we've done inadvertently since 
you know, probably the forties, maybe earlier, um, is we're mixing and matching individuals who have these different levels of exposure, these different, uh, perhaps disease types. So there's just this kind of mess out there. And these scientists, these scientists are just trying to figure out how complex it is. Um, so it's a really interesting issue. And without getting too much deeper in the weeds, the two women that I profiled, one has dedicated 25 years of her life to the Hell's Canyon region. And she has just done an amazing job of kind of turning that population around from very few to a relatively robust population. And then the younger woman who I profile uh, may or may not, but I kind of tee her up as potentially the person to carry the torch once Francis retires. Um, so you have this kind of like lineage of, of strong women kind of shaping a really iconic population of bighorn. It's amazing how much of that kind of work goes on in the background. And it very often doesn't see, you know, papers get written on it, but in terms of public eyes on the work being done, it very often doesn't see the light of day. I mean, that's exactly... Yeah, aquaculture is the same. Right. I mean, I think that was a big reason why I was excited to finish graduate school and leave academia because I was surrounded by these peers and contemporaries and mentors who were extraordinary, doing remarkable work, um, studying incredible places, intriguing species and topics. And they, not only do they not have a social media presence, I mean, they have, there's nothing you might, it might within be, academic circles, everybody will probably know who they are. I'm guessing. Yeah. But I mean, even in academic circles, like if you're, you know, a, an upcoming PhD student in a wildlife biology lab, I mean, you might have a little bit of a following based on who your mentor or your advisory committee is, but you're not incredibly uh, exposed. I mean, if you look at like the most cited science papers out there, in the wildlife management world, I mean, maybe they're cited a few hundred times. Those are extraordinary papers. So even within like their space, you know, it's a lot of that work is, uh, you know, cherished by people who are in that narrow field. That, of, that of, niche that, that they're, that they're niche. interested in. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, not only was I, did I see an opportunity to kind of highlight some of those people. Like storytelling their story. Right. Yeah. But there's also so much that hunters and harvesters and, and people who work on and with these wild and working landscapes, I think would benefit from their knowledge. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of the things that frustrates me so much at home is I know that there's some incredible work going on behind the scenes, uh, you know, by like the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, for example, you know, whether that be on um, gray partridges or diseases in grouse and mountain hare, um, or just population dynamics. And the one thing that they're really bad at is actually making that information accessible to people. I mean, it exists if you really want to go and wade through a paper, but it's beyond most people and it's kind of dry. Right. <laughs> so why would you want to unless that was kind of your thing? Right. Um, but there are loads and loads of takeaways within those papers, either being uh, written now or you know over the last 50 years, right. which we could probably learn a lot from if we knew it was there. Totally, and, and I, you need these people sort of in between, I feel, between the hardcore scientists that are just doing amazing work every day, the people who use that landscape, and then these, the, the, the missing link is often that person in between to be able to storytell and, and take that information in a way that can be consumed. Absolutely. I suppose I, that's kind of what you're doing now, right? 
Yeah, in, in many instances. Yeah, that was kind of my. Uh, I, I guess that's kind of like my north star since I've left academia and the science world. Um, I also think something that Modern Huntsman does really well that I'm really excited about is that I think we're really fair reporters of science and wildlife management. And a theme that Tyler and I talked about from the get-go was we, we need to remind our audience that science is imperfect, that it stands on the shoulders. And this is something I talk about in my story. It stands on the shoulders of its predecessors. Science is an improving field. We're constantly trying to figure out better questions, better ways to ask the questions, better ways to collect the data. And we have this 95% confidence interval. Yeah. So we're always out there trying to improve upon our understanding or what we think we know. And I, I, I look at that level of awareness that we're trying to broadcast to our audience. And I, then I look at headlines in the papers. And everything in the papers seems so definitive. So... You know, this is and often very polar as well. Exactly. And I think that you get, so we're, we're kind of working against that inertia because you have a general public that's used to seeing the world is not flat. You know, animals are this way. This is this way. This ecosystem. Are you about to tell us the world is actually flat? <laughs> no, that's Re- from another podcast. Charles is a flat lander. <laughs> but it's, so I think that one of the nice things is we talk about these issues and we, I think we do a good job of talking about the complexity and talking about these people who are who are really tireless in their attempts and efforts to disentangle these 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 topics that are changing over space and time. And it's not I mean Africa, right? Tyler is an expert in Africa. You've spent a lot of time working on African issues. Is Africa Africa or is Africa composed of not only multiple countries, but multi- multiple regions that are managed differently with different goals and political backgrounds and economic drivers? All of the above. All yeah. of the Unfortunately, above. a lot of people think Africa is a country. Yeah. And then even within <laughs> regions that are similar, right, the, the governments and the regulations and the tribal structure are all different. So what is one, you know truth in Namibia is totally different than Mozambique and same thing between Zambia and Zimbabwe or right. particularly Tanzania and Kenya. Right. So. And I think that is like what Tyler just said is I feel is one of our pillars at Modern Huntsman is, Hey, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than it might seem. Yeah. And it's a little bit more complicated than the general public might be made aware of through traditional media. And we're here to honor and appreciate the complexity and, and tell some stories about people who are doing really good work to bring these complexities to life in a digestible way. And I don't have to say this to you, but and, and, and neither to you, Byron, but you know, a lot of the things we've talked about with contributors and, and subject matters is when people send us stories and they're like, hey, this is what I want to do. And we have to remind them, great, you know, are you the expert on this topic? Right. If you're not, Go find them, right? get their advice, get their input, right? And present what you've learned right. and what you found, right? right? Don't come in here saying, oh, this is the way it is, or because we don't know that. Very right. few of us are the foremost expert on these topics. We're trying to find those people. We're trying to give them a voice. We're trying to have conversations with them to educate people and spread information. But yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on anything. Yeah. Other than maybe drinking coffee too fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we've, you know, we've had to really pause on some stories that I think were really strong yeah. additions in previous issues. Well, like the American Wolf. Yeah, we just didn't feel comfortable at broaching the topic without the right... The time and the space to... Exactly. 
to do it. Yeah, and, and I know exactly what you mean there. I mean, there's a couple on top of my head, especially as we're coming into the African, talking about you know Africa issue ahead, and there's some really deep stuff there that does require a lot of time, a lot of work, and a lot of effort to do it justice. Right. Well, and I think that was something that really stands out about your piece in issue th- in volume three was you know you did the piece on the grouse, like the moorland management, and I think that really embodies that respect to complexity because you not only got into the like again the pillars of moorland management but you really got into the complexities of those pillars and acknowledged this is a story of this place there are people who do it differently but this is one story that's indicative or representative of this place and i think you did such a good job of like painting that picture talking about the broader conceptual themes, but then also getting really detailed and acknowledging, you know, this is the power of a few gamekeepers. I uh, bribed Charles to say that. Both yeah. <laughs> but only $6. It was isn't that cheap. much? Yeah. Cheap, I, always, I always joke about it. Byron's like, oh, I wrote, a, I wrote an article. That is not an article. That was a dissertation. What's it ended up being almost 6,000 words, right? I don't even remember. It was long. Well, it, we it cut like 20,000 of those words. <laughs> <laughs> Charles just rewrote it. Quite, <laughs> quite comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. I, and do you know the weird thing about that article is I'm not even that into grouse. <laughs> you know, if I, I hate if, grouse. <laughs> if I was to pick, you know, I, I'm more of a big game guy. Right. Like, that's the thing that sort of fascinated me, you know, whether it be big game, bigger game at home. I mean, our game only goes as big as Red Deer um, or big African game. That's what's always enthused me. But I have this world of grouse on my doorstep and all these people that I've spent, you know, most of my life with. And you know, some of that was facilitated by the fact that I knew that I should know more. And uh, yeah, it kind of gave me the motivation to to dig into it. So I'm curious because I grew up in salmon country, so I had I had salmon in my backyard. I think when I was a kid, so I'm 31, so back in the 90s, still a kid, still a kid, very much. You're the so. youngest person in the room. <laughs> yes, yeah, I forgot. Except the puppy, who's yeah. Yeah, six weeks or eight weeks. Um, when I was a kid, I don't think we our community had the awareness about salmon that they have today. Maybe because the populations weren't declining as quickly. Maybe because the media wasn't so focused on kind of these environmental themes um, that they have been recently with the state of the planet and wildlife in general. Would you say that grouse were something that was always kind of, you know, tip of the spear, tip of the tongue back home? Or has it become more of an issue for good? In, in, in modern I'm not day. sure. I, I think uh, grouse is a bit of a difficult one at home because it's very political. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the issues around restrictions with regard to management and criticisms with regard to management actually has nothing to do with science and success, and everything to do with the politics of land ownership um, or people who just don't like the notion of killing something. Um, so it's quite polarized with re- with regard to that. So I don't know if grouse is a a good example to um, explore that, but I can say if I was to look at salmon, which is you know perfectly paralleled, I'd say that's definitely true. I think when I was a a little kid fishing the rivers, as far as I can remember, I mean it's kind of difficult if you cast your cast your mind right back there because I'm not sure if it's just because I didn't really. It's not that I didn't care, but I wasn't aware of it. Um, it wasn't in your face. It wasn't necessarily in the articles that I read. And so you just kind of assume that, you know, the salmon come back and everything's okay. 
And then as I got older, I think it's definitely been more in people's mind. You know, even even like in the last five years, uh, it's becoming more obvious just how much of a problem we have. I mean, I know that as somebody who fishes because I have a vested interest and, and I care for this an amazing fish that I've grown up knowing. And there's definitely not as many as them as there were when I was a child. Uh, but I'm not sure whether the, the care exists from your average man on the street who can still go and buy salmon in the shops right. and probably doesn't even realize that they're not the same thing. Well, it's, I mean, you know, Rachel, she's, I would say, pretty aware of salmon. You know, I, I was in a salmon ecology lab. I, I'm obsessed with salmon. There's a wood salmon above your head. Um, the other day she called me at our co-op and said, because hey, we make sushi quite a bit and they have uh, Copper River sockeye, wild sockeye, which we get, which is just such a treat. Um, and that's typically what we buy. We, we only buy wild salmon. And she said, oh, hey, they have king. And I think I was on a plane, so she's texting me. And I said, oh, what kind of king? And she said, oh, it just says king salmon on it. And I said, oh, well, could you text me a photo just so I can see it? And I could tell immediately from the color of the of the meat that it was farmed because yeah. it has that, you know, it's rather than that deep red from all the omega threes and sixes and maybe nines, but whatever from the wild diet, it's bland. And this is Aura King. So it was frustrating that even at our local market, they're not saying this is a, a, a raised, a farm raised fish, but Aura King comes from New Zealand. <laughs> and it's just kind of a bummer because to your point, you have people who are saying, Oh yeah, I bought king salmon. Little do they realize that king salmon populations that are returning to Alaska are in decline. Copper River, I believe, was closed from commercial fishing this past year. You have the Bristol Bay mine, the Pebble Mine issue. That I saw your sticker on the back of your truck. Oh my gosh, I've had that. I've had that exact same sticker on a vehicle, my vehicle, since I was in high school in 2004. I finished high school in 06. I think in sophomore year I got one. I mean, it's been that long. It's just crazy, you know. And to your point, people go to the market. You can go to any Walmart. And you see it everywhere. Yeah, you can. I mean, go to any Walmart in America and probably buy a fillet of salmon. Yeah, you, you know. know what, you know what I'd love to see. Apart from, and we're seeing it a little bit more now in uh, in Scotland, an awareness of the impact on on salmon farms with regard to uh, the implications to wild stocks, because they have been. You know, there are lots of causal links. Where there's been salmon farms and they've decimated wild stocks, either of salmon or salmon and sea trout. But what would be an incredibly responsible move, apart from better practices, which I'd love to see, would be for them to help raise awareness of the wild stocks. So where you have, where you can go and buy salmon, it's like this is not wild salmon. This is farm salmon. We are, uh, you know, doing it under all the rules and regulations, which mean that, mean that this is a good product. But hey, did you know? wild salmon are suffering and this is why and it would be people are looking at this stuff when they're buying it all the time anyway and i don't think it would take much right you know like the cigarette packets and the you know picture of a deformed baby or your lungs about to fall out of your chest maybe uh companies who sell salmon could give a little bit of information about wild salmon right well on I, the think, packaging. I think you're starting to see that with you know the salmon sisters and there's a few other uh smaller Another great article in volume four yes yeah. that and i'm I think that, um, no disrespect to your brilliant writing, but I think that's my favorite piece oh, I, I've read. I agree. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we both said that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fantastic. And, uh, and something we're actually working on with Valentine is a consumer's guide to seafood right. fraud and things like that about what companies say to mislead people because according to, you know, research and information that seafood's the number one traded commodity in the world. And when there's that many zeros, it's a billion dollar industry. When there's that many zeros behind something, these companies don't, it's hard to move those. Right. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, I, I didn't know about, I love salmon. Right. But then I wasn't aware of these issues until I started hanging out with you guys and learning more about the importance of traceability of fish and understanding the source and what does that term mean versus this term, right? And because of some of the greenwashing and saying, well, this is sustainably caught. Well, what does sustainably caught mean? Right. It's very complex. Right. And yeah. Well, and, you know, our last issue, we had that incredible artificial story. Mm-hmm. You know? d- d- talk, talk to that a little bit. I was just about to ask you about yeah. it. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen the film yet. It was doing a tour around Scotland, but then I was... You know, I was out the country, I was in the Congo, wherever yeah, it was, yeah. so I'm going to try and catch it when I go back. Yeah, so um, Josh Bones Murphy, who's the director of that film, um, we're new friends, but we both, he lives where I grew up and we've connected quite a bit um, back there. And when I heard about this project being made, it just took my breath away because it is such an important story. And it hasn't been told in a way that's digestible and attractive to the general public and to the average seafood consumer. And I mean, until quite recently, a lot of that wasn't even really known, though, was it? You know, I don't think or it. Do you had, think it just wasn't? I don't think it had been synthesized okay. in a comprehensive way because a lot of that. And and again, like you, my background, I'm a little unique in that I grew up with salmon in my backyard. I mean, where a lot of that stuff is being filmed, that's where I see my graduate work in Northern California. So it's just um, quite close to you. Super close. I mean, I there was a sam- Salmon Creek. My dad was on the board of Caltrout when I was a kid, and we had a Salmon Creek 10 feet from my back fence that was the Army Corps of Engineers before I was born turned the lower half of that creek into a cement uh, storm drainage and the upper half wild with a, with a dam. So when I was little, my dad would help us climb over the barbed wire fence. We'd go into the cement culvert catch coho, put him in a bucket, carry him back over and drop him off. But now there's no, I mean, I think this, the, that population is functionally extinct. Um, so anyway, so I was super intrigued by this project when it was coming about and to see Patagonia putting so many resources and so much energy behind this topic just got me so excited. And then when I started talking with Josh and seeing not only who he was working with, but the 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 depth to which he was exploring this topic, not just regionally in Northern California, but nationally throughout the states and and internationally, looking at you know uh, issues in Canada and issues in Norway, um, kind of issues that are affecting Salmonids at large, was really really powerful. Um, so just the opportunity for Modern Huntsman to be involved and help do the little that we could to you know elevate that that story. Uh, yeah, that was a huge, huge win. And I, and, you know, having talked with Josh and, and just kind of like followed the media trail behind the release, I know that it's, it hasn't been, uh, free of, of conflict because the farmed salmon industry is a big one. That's huge. And I think the, the degree of, of, of understanding by the general public about this issue is limited and it's a kind of a complex uh, 
topic in the sense that when somebody says, why are farm salmon bad? That kind of opens up a can of worms, right? Because there's many ways that salmon are raised, many places where they're raised. You know, they could be raised in a fjord in Norway. They could be raised at a mouth of a river off of the coast of Washington, depending on where that open uh, net or depending on where that, that pen where they're raised is located and the, and the water flow can dictate how much sea lice is getting into the native fish as they're passing by or either out migrating smolts or back adults in, coming back in. I mean, depending on the water flow will dictate how much um, eutrophication is taking place, all the nutrients, because you have all these adult fish, uh, you know, defecating and, and putting nitrogen and phosphorus back in the water, which can create out toxic algal, algal blooms. And then, of course, you have, you know, a great case study that they really do spend quite a bit of time talking about in the San Francisco Bay ecosystem is this issue where California used to be the most, one of the most productive salmon fisheries in the world, you know, pre-westward expansion, pre-European uh, kind of impact. Sacramento River was an incredibly productive fishery, uh, just, you know, on par with the best ones in Alaska. Um, but now you have this um, channelization, this homogenization, this simplification of these once complex watersheds into these very narrow, straight river corridors that have facilitated the development of the Central Central Valley into an agricultural kind of mecca. You know, a lot of rice production, a lot of crops are grown there. But what it's resulted in is basically it's super difficult for a wild fish to get from the Golden Gate up through Sassoon Bay into any any good spawning habitat just because it's it's this I mean if you look at it on Google Maps it's like a sea of straight lines there's no no habitat no complexity no places for them to hide during high flow or places where they can find thermal refuge during warm days it's loaded with invasive predators like bass and you know striped bass and largemouth bass um, the the decks set against them the cards are set against them for sure um, and then, so what they've done is a lot of the um, the hatchery fish, rather than letting fish go where they're born, wild salmon have this tendency, this life history trait called phylopatry, which if you break it down in Latin, it, it you know phylo is home and patry is like a, a connection to. So salmon have this phylopatric tendency, which means they go home, and that's what gets salmon back to their natal streams where they spawn. So what happens is when you raise a fish in an upper watershed in a hatchery, and then instead of just putting them in the creek so they make their way downstream and maybe they can fulfill that life history behavior, um, to mitigate mortality from all these invasive predators and all this horrible habitat, they're like... It's a gauntlet getting back to it's sea. It's a gauntlet. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, well, let's just put them in a truck and we'll just drive them down to the ocean. It's perfect. So then what happens is they dump a few million smolts out into the mouth of the Pacific Ocean there where, you know, some survive. But you basically have these fish that are not fit for life in the wild. Yeah. It's like, where do I live? Where do I live? And these aren't even, these aren't, the, these are not fish, I should say, these are not fish that are raised in nets like they are perhaps in Norway. Yeah, these are closed containment, pumping fresh water in and back yeah, out. Yeah, these are, these are uh, operations that are meant to, to supplement wild populations. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're for people at, um, in the UK, they're like the old hatcheries. Okay. Well, I mean, essentially what they are, aren't they? Yeah. They're, they're hatchery. Do they, do they, they're, they're stripping wild fish as they come up the river. Exactly. And then. 
It, well, and not. some of those fish are not truly wild, right? Because some of them might have crossbred with some of those hatchery fish. Mm-hmm. So you have truly wild fish that are fulfilling that whole life history without being touched. And then you have some fish that'll end up in the system, maybe breed with a white, truly wild fish. Now you're getting these kind of diluted gene pools. And what a lot of the scientists, the folks that I used to work with are saying is now you're just stripping away their, you know, evolution's beautiful product, which is a fish that is totally tapped into that creek. I mean, a steelhead trout in Mexico is has proteins that allow it to live in warmer water than a steelhead trout in Alaska because that fish evolved to live in warmer waters. And it's why we see um, very distinct shapes and sizes of fish, of salmon, running right. different river systems. Right, right. In that, Scotland. It's and, always been like that. And the, the guys, I mean, back in the... I was going to say back in the good old days, but <laughs> it seems a little cliche to say that. But back in the old books that I used to read, when there were a lot of salmon running, those people who were fishing for salmon across the country, they could tell by looking at a fish at a certain time of year and like, that's probably a fish from the spay. Right. Or, you know, look at the depth on it. That's probably come from the D. And that's amazing. And when you're doing, when you're interfering in a way that I'm guessing at the I mean, at the time, we probably thought we were doing a good, good deed Absolutely. You know, <laughs> right. by these wild salmon. By interfering, we've actually done potentially irreversible damage. I mean, once you lose that genetic kind of code book, it's really hard for a fish to find that adaption because they're not suited for certain aspects of that creek that make that creek different from the next one. And there's actually a book that's behind you an entirely synthetic fish, which is more about rainbow trout, but it's it's a book that talks about the um, distribution of rainbow trout across the globe. And they came from a seed population in the McLeod River. And it talks about how this one fish is now in Africa or, you know, uh, offspring of this fish are now in Africa. They're in South America. New Zealand. New Zealand. But, you know, you look at, you have a fish that was adapted to a watershed that came comes off Shasta, Mount Shasta in California, and now it's it's uh, across the globe. What are the implications ecologically? But well, they your, have adapted very well. They have, yeah. yeah. And rainbow trout are more flexible, more plastic than a lot of salmon. And salmon species within the Pacific salmon group, there are certain salmon and certain runs that are more plastic than others. Pink salmon have this life history where it's like make as many babies as possible and they all hit the ocean at the same time. Predator flood, you know, predators don't know what to do because there's so many little fish coming out and then they have this incredible stray rate. So pink salmon, like when the Elwha dam was taken out, pink salmon were the first to show up because the ocean's filled with these little pink salmon just cruising around looking for opportunity. Their instinct is not like Atlantic salmon, for example. Right, right. And then coho, which are where I grew up with, are quite sensitive because they really require these shallow, shaded, uh, low gradient watersheds, places where huge redwoods would grow out of the middle of the creek and the coho salmon would, the babies would find refuge in the root ball of these gigantic redwoods. I mean, that habitat's rare, you know, and then you have different runs. California used to have a spring, summer, winter, and fall Chinook run. And I mean, if you think about the hydrology of what is the Sacramento River doing at those four parts of the year, very different things. So certainly you would have had fish that are 
very well adapted to yeah, we have very similar thing uh, and certain components of our runs have declined more than others so like the spring run which tended to be the big multi-sea wintered fish in many rivers is what's declined most wow it's tough i mean then you think about you know kind of bringing it home to to texas where tyler's from you know we talk about wildlife and people say oh i've seen deer there are so many deer how what's the issue you know, you bring up CWD. We just got our third case in Montana. Oh, really? Just uh, a week ago. Huh. Yeah, I was talking with um, a guy named Chris Derrick who works over at Sitka Gear, and he was, I saw him on a plane, and he said that there was a, a deer that was picked up positive, I think, just east of Billings. That's the third one, and CWD is... Third one ever or third one this year? Third one ever in Montana, I believe. Okay. But there's just been a handful of, of cases here in Montana. Um, but it's spreading. And that I mean, the implications of that disease across deer populations is... Huge. So we're talking caribou, moose, elk, um, deer, of course, mule, and whitetail. Um, but it's a huge issue. But then you, if you were to ask somebody, if you were to do a survey in Texas and say, tell us about deer, they'd be like, it's overrun with deer. And there are a lot of deer in these urban environments. Yeah. Um, but how do, you, how do you bridge the gap between that type of awareness, which a lot of suburban people have across america and, and, the, and the deeper awareness and the deeper what's awareness really going on, yeah. right yeah we actually have a, a recipe in, in volume four from our chef feature danielle pruitt who's based in houston texas and she cooks a lot of wild game a lot of venison and that's something she's addressing is cwd or chronic wasting disease for some of your uk listeners and uh just that two twofold one that if you're gonna cook wild game she kind of evangelizes and promotes the use of alternative cuts a lot of people think you can only eat certain things uh but one of those being the neck cut is the risk of of cwd and so you know that's one of those things she's trying to make aware make people aware of and discuss in that which is interesting and i think that going one further from awareness of game eating game right but then also being aware of you know, what you should know and not know about that kind of stuff. Right. Well, and, you know, I think it's this this urban awareness of wildlife is really interesting. Um, one of the things that really caught my attention when I was in Texas working on a project with Ben Masters years ago was I wanted to find a place to just go hike. And I found a Audubon sanctuary that's home to a, a endemic warbler. It's a small little Amazing. yellow songbird that only lives in a few places in, in the Austin region of Texas. And when I got to, I got in touch with the head uh, biologist and he said, yeah, come out, we can go hike, we'll go bird watching, whatever. And I go out there and I immediately see a placard that says, um, you know, it talks about deer hunting. And I asked the biologist, said, what's the relationship between deer hunting and this preserve? I keep seeing all these signs about deer hunting. And he said, oh, well, we lease out the Audubon Sanctuary to deer hunters and their fees, their lease fees, keep us afloat. And it, still to this day, I'd love to do a story on it, but you have these kind of urban and suburban environments where deer populations, whitetail, have done incredibly well, but you have these little islands of refugia for unique, rare, threatened wildlife. And how cool is it? Like, do bird watchers know that deer hunters are saving one of their most precious bird species? But I just think that's so cool because you do have, you know, we've, humans have done a really good job of destroying a lot of ecosystems. 
but wildlife are pretty We're resilient. good at that. We're good at that. <laughs> and wildlife have really, there's a few species that have been able to hang on. So I think these kind of unlikely friendships, if you will, allegiances where you have a deer hunter saving a warbler and the deer hunter probably doesn't know it. Yeah. And the bird watcher probably doesn't know it, but you know. And, and building these connections in a public kind of form is so important because the next question you've got to ask yourself is if you are someone who um, doesn't like the notion of people going out and killing deer. Right. Yeah. What are the implications of that? Okay, so remove it tomorrow. In, in this one little case that you're talking about, remove right. it tomorrow. How do you fund that? And that's the thing. You right. always need economic input. Right. Without economic input, then wildlife and ecosystems, they would just cease to exist. That's just the world we live in. Right. Well, I mean, I'm no expert, but my understanding of the African um, management model at large really, in some cases, does rely on that economic, maybe maybe in all cases, relies on that economic driver. Um, I mean, it's a big component of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are some places where it entirely relies. Uh, there's many places where, you know, they share that economic um, input with, you know, other forms uh, of tourism. But yeah, it's, 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 I think it's more obvious there than in many places. Yeah. And yet it's, it's more obvious and yet it seems to be one of the biggest fights. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think that's down to, uh, that's down to the type of animals that it that are involved in that discussion. Right. You know, people are, we, we say, we talk about this all the time on the podcast, but people feel less connected to a salmon than they would do to an elephant. Right. Right. So just out of curiosity, what, you know, looking ahead at Modern Huntsman volume five, five? for Africa. Yeah. Volume five. Already, isn't that crazy? We're yeah, already there. I know. <laughs> feels like the other day when we're like, volume one. Yeah. I was like, oh man, <laughs> this is an undertaking. I remember doing the first podcast with Tyler. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Um, so volume five, I mean, Africa's not a simple topic. No. What? We, we've been touching, we, every, probably every day since I've been here this last week, we talk about that issue, you know, right. a little bit, trying to work out where, where it's going to go. So what are some of the themes that you think will really be our kind of North Star as the team broaches some of these Sorry. topics. Yeah. I'm laughing little, because the puppy your little puppies come in and he's obviously picked the squeakiest toy yeah. in the room. <laughs> so, you know, there's, I think, a, a common thread with the discussions we're having with brands and organizations and, and possible sponsors and things like that is that the stakes are really high, right. right? The political landscape is so charged right now. There's there's legislation in the United States right now that is potentially banning- the In the UK. Yeah, and Same in the UK, thing. potentially banning the importation of any trophies, not even just particularly one species or another. And so we all understand that there's a lot at stake here and that whatever we do- can't create a backslide, right? It's got to right. be a constructive conversation. And so what my hope, so many people are scared of discussing it, scared of talking about it. Brands don't want to go amazing. near it. Yeah. And what I hope to achieve is prove that we can have these conversations in a constructive way. Um, and so we are doing, you know, drawing from Byron and I's fairly extensive experience and, and contacts over in, in many countries over there, gathering the right group of people who have spent their lives dedicated to conservation, not just hunting, 
but conservation, right? And understanding the way forward has to be a mixture and a collaboration between hunting operations, photographic operations, you know, lion conservancies, uh, hyena researchers, that it can't just be us versus them anymore. It has to be this sort of collaborative uh, amalgamation and, and kind of patchwork of methods. It's going to be different for every country. Uh but to try to remove emotion from that as much as possible, which, which is difficult. And we were talking about this last night with Nicole Qualtieri, that even though hunting in the United States is majorly viewed in a favorable light, I think she said it was 70% of people yeah. are okay with it, right? However, that that's probably referring to hunting in the United States. And I would argue that the American public at large and the resultant social media wave is quite possibly the greatest threat to African conservation because of what people think and what they hear and how they react to things has dramatic effects on U.S. legislation, which in turn through lobby groups and CITES groups, which way these countries are going in terms of the methods they're, they're going to employ for, you know, management of their, or their wildlife resources. And that's, that's a little bit scary and a little bit dangerous. And so I think that, that's kind of the hope is that we can start to have the conversation that's not necessarily one group or the other lobbying or pushing for one thing or another. It's just that we're trying to come up with solutions and positive, you know, progress. One of the very obvious things that I've seen, you know, happening in the last couple of years is that particular, particularly in respect to Africa, is the rules and regulation changes within countries that are very far removed from that continent are having detrimental impacts on it. And it, it's, it means that they are not able to manage their wildlife and their ecosystems in the way that they would really like to. You know, you change uh, legislation here with regard to um, animal product input, uh, imports. We do it in the UK. There's a lot of knock-on effects to that. And it's out now out with their control. And, you know, that's... It's worrying because I'm not sure whether a lot of the people making these decisions truly understand what the implications are. And many of the many of those people in those lobby groups have probably never even been there <laughs> as well. Yeah. Which is always quite unbelievable. Well, I think, you know, you're, you're touching on something that I know for all of us was a focal point of awareness when we kind of dove into Modern Huntsman was the perception of hunting that many people, non-anti and even hunters, have of hunting is not representative of the hunting we all know and the yep. hunting that we grew up with and the people who we look up to and looked up to as young people. And I think with Africa, right, there's always going to be the best examples. Those are the ones we want to highlight. Those are the ones we want to celebrate. And there's always going to be the rogue bad apple, the situation that's that's unfortunate the situation that's yeah. maybe gross or could definitely be improved upon yeah and it, it it requires some inward looking as well right you know and i think that's part of the discussion it's uh it's being open honest embracing the science embracing the information that we know um being able to have discussions across the table but also looking inward Right. at you know what we do and making sure that what we think we know because it's what we've always known is still correct today because ultimately whatever we do needs to be for the greater benefit of those communities that live with the wildlife the ecosystems around them and the wildlife within them right 
Well, and to add to that too, that the solutions presented are African solutions to African problems, right? And I think that that's a major theme that we're going to dig into as well is who are we? And when I say we, I mean, you know, the West, Great Britain, America, who project our opinions on how African countries should run their wildlife management and, uh, you know, conservation policies and, and, and turn the tables, right? If, if Tanzania and Kenyan um, populations were intervening in how we manage white-tailed deer, <laughs> right. we'd be like, get out of here. No way. <laughs> you know, but for some reason, it's okay for these, you know, I, I hate to use the word, you know, conservation colonialism, but I mean, there's an element of ecological colonialism where, where we are sort of imposing our beliefs on these other countries, even though we really have no right or reason to. It's almost like the, there's, for certain species, there's global ownership. Yeah, yeah. Or there's perceived global ownership. Yeah. Whereas, you know, no one in the UK or Europe is going to feel like they uh, need to really have any input on, you know, I pick Bighorn again because it's the story that you wrote. But we all feel like we know something about elephants or lions. doesn't matter what country in the world you're from. And it's, uh, I mean, it's charismatic megafauna, isn't it? To use your phrase. So there's a book behind you right there, Conservation Refugees. This one. Which I have not read, admittingly, but one of my great friends, Alyssa Ravasio, I believe will also be featured. She's the CEO and founder of HipCamp, just a f phenomenal thinker. Um, this book, to my understanding, talks about the implications and repercussions of conservation. So one of the things that I have participated in as well as my wife uh rachel pole is that you know we travel a lot we have a carbon footprint that's real we are also you know everybody in this room is committed to trying to do the best we can for the environment how do we consider and counter uh, the impacts we have through our lifestyle and how can we find ways to mitigate that and one of the things that people do with carbon offsetting is you might buy a forest or support the purchase of a forest in Indonesia, prevent it from being logged. You're saving it. You're keeping carbon in the ground. That carbon is then potentially an offset in a very crude, simplified way. But what I believe this book talks about is there are re repercussions, ramifications of conservation. You have local people, communities who might not get the long end of the stick you know, who might be caught in the crosshairs and maybe they have been living in that forest doing their thing for 5,000 years. And now suddenly they can't anymore. And yeah, some big NGO comes in and says, we're going to buy this up. You're going to thank us because we're keeping carbon in the ground. And they're like, well, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm just going to give the title of this book. It says uh, Conservation Refugees and then the, the subtitle is A Hundred Year Conflict Between Global Conservation and Native People by Mark Dowie. So that's that's next on my list, and it's it's right. What's the book that's uh, right about becoming wild? That's this one, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt African Game Trails. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that was one that I inherited from my uh, from my grandparents. Yeah, there's a lot to consider, uh, and our impact on uh, on the planet is something which has most certainly been in the news for the last couple of weeks. What have you made of that, Charles? Have you met, in all your traveling? Have you managed to? to keep tabs on what's been going on there. Oh, like the UN climate? It was, the, yeah, the UN climate conference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think it's exciting to see so many people across the globe really getting behind the issue. I mean, I was told to gra as a graduate student that 
climate change would become relevant when you or somebody you know is directly impacted. And I think regardless of political affiliation, um, religious background, socioeconomic background, I think more and more people across the globe are starting to say, I have been impacted by our changing planet, changing weather, changing climate, um, by changes. They can call it whatever they want. You can put it whatever bin you want to put it in. But there are things, whether it's ocean acidification, whether it's uh, record heat, whether it's record bushfires in Australia, whether it's the Amazon, which has been burning for years and years and years. And it just so happens that this last spate of fire caught the global media's attention. Um, I think you're just... You're, we're hitting an inflection point of awareness because so many people are being impacted by these aberrations, by this crazy shit that's happening. Whatever you want to call it, maybe maybe climate change is too political of a word in some circles, so just call it what you want to call it. But I think you're getting this. People are are aware because they're they're affected. So it's hor- it's sad that it's had to get to that point, but I think people will begin to act and start to think about, you know, what are some of the ways we can address climate change? Powering women. When women vote and women have a say in the household, you know, like that is a great way to move society in a di- into a direction where they're thinking about nurturing and stewarding. Um, there's a lot of economic, social, environmental uh shifts that we can make that I think ultimately will better our chances, better humanities, the world's chances into the future. I mean, we're in the sixth mass extinction. What did they just say? 70 billion, uh, or what was it? I've read so many stats recently yeah, on, the, the, on the decline of species and the amount of, uh, the amount of species that go extinct, you know, every week. It's, an, it's, it's, an, it's and, and all the ones that we don't know about. Right. That we never even got to discover in the first place. Right. Or they're finding... Which is a projection of, or, you know, they're finding remnants of... Right. One or two or a handful. I mean, I think they just found a new owl species in, uh, I want to say Indonesia. A new owl. I mean, I know they're constantly finding new frogs and new plants and and whatnot, but it's um, it's incredible. And, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Vincent Colliard, he's a polar explorer, one of our best friends, his partner, uh, Borge Usland or Ausland, I'm not quite sure to say his last name. Um, he's a polar explorer and he's with, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Anyway, they're, they just take a sailboat to 85 degrees north. It's the furthest a sailboat's ever been. Not an icebreaker. And oh, wow. they're now on their way to the North Pole. And I've been following them, following along. Mike Horn is his partner. It's just crazy. I mean, they're talking about, ice that should be feet and meters thick are inches and centimeters thick. I mean, and without getting into like the doom and gloom of it, I mean, you think about the way our oceans work and how sinking cold water in the North Atlantic. Oh, the cur- the ocean currents. It's huge. Shape everything. It's huge. It, it, I, I'm, I'm worried about the Gulf Stream selfishly. <laughs> yeah. Because it means we're going to be like Alaska if the Gulf Stream shifts. That's the only thing that keeps us warm. Well, and I mean, when we were in Norway, you know, Rachel and I, like we talked about earlier, we were in Norway this summer, and they were talking about more warm water because the Norwegian fjords are situated, they're like open mouths to the Gulf Stream. So the cod and the whales and the sea life are all where they are as a function of where these nutrient-rich waters meet the coast. But the water is getting so warm, a lot of the fish and the whales and the life are moving north and inward, inland, further into the fjords. 
So you have these traditional communities that for thousands of years have persisted at this location because of the fish, the cod. And now it's shifting. And now they're like, oh, well, they're over here or they're over there because the water's warmer. Mm. In you know the uh... we've seen it with sand eel populations as well hmm. chasing the cold water north. Wow! And the implications of that, although I've never seen a definitive study on it, there was a study that I read was about puffins actually. Uh, but there are some people suggesting that it might have had an impact on the decline of sea trout across our coast because they don't they don't migrate way out like salmon do. They basically just hug our coastline, and one of the the staples of their diet is sand eels. So if the sand eels are shifting way north past our our coastline. And, you know, what are the sea trout going to eat? Well, you know... And there's lots of knock-on effects like that. Absolutely. And, and the black-legged kittiwake is mm-hmm. the most abundant gull on Earth. It's generally a northern northern gull that lives in northern latitudes around the world. Uh, it's super common um, in Norway. It's like kind of the, the ubiquitous... Uh, the call, like if you go to any Norwegian fishing village, you'll you'll hear this kind of like raucous call of a, of a black-legged kittiwake. We were there in the spring as well on another trip. I see this bird, I'm like, wow, I've never seen this bird. It's amazing. I'd love to read some science papers on it. Go on Google Scholar. For all you listening, if you're looking for science papers, Google Scholar is a great place to conduct your research. It's all free. Um, you can get access peer-reviewed science papers. So I'm, I'm searching there, and I find these papers that show the black-legged kittiwake is in rapid decline worldwide, and it's supposed to be extinct in Norway in the next 100 years. The most abundant bird on the coast of Norway it's supposed to be extinct in the next hundred years because of the shift you're talking about with prey um, moving to untraditional grounds, waters that are now so far away from nesting sites. Anyway, it's just one of these things where you're like, this is happening before everybody's right underneath everybody's like nose. Within a few generations. Yeah, but it's just not top of mind because people are so used, like that is the soundtrack of the Norwegian coast. I, uh, I'm conscious of the fact that I would like to talk for another hour, but I have a plane to catch. <laughs> Where are you headed? Uh, I'm headed to LA. Yeah, for um, yeah, the last part of my trip before I head home. Awesome. Uh, but what I wanted to wrap up on, yeah. you're going to have to do it quickly, Yes. Uh, is give me just a couple of things that people can do that you're maybe doing already to just reduce their you know, negative impact on the planet. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, one really cool one is offsetting your carbon footprint. You can not, when you like buy a plane ticket, I just did it the other day. You take the box, basically. Yep. So some airlines have that. A lot of American airlines don't have that option that's easily accessible. So what we do is we go to... Uh, there's there's a few. There's Choose, which I think has three O's. Um, Choose Today. It's a Norwegian brand, Norwegian company, rather. Uh, you can go through them and you can basically put in the miles that I flew from LA to Nashville or whatever. And you can, it'll basically... This computer will put out an output and it'll tell you how much carbon that flight cost and how much you have to, how much you have to pay. So we just pay a monthly fee every month. We, we pay more than enough to cover our airfare. And then we actually pay quite a bit more than that just to be climate, you know, positive. Another great thing is single, you know, reducing single use plastics. If you can cut it out, cut it out. Um, Plastic is a huge issue. We talked about it earlier on the podcast. It's real, you know, climate change is the elephant in the room, but, plastic man that's something that we can all take a stab at with just the way we conduct our daily life it's an easy it's an easy adjustment to make i also think gear i mean everybody listening probably values good gear right and 
the textile industry is a massive, massive industry that has massive implications in terms of waste and yeah. energy. And I listened water. to an amazing podcast about dyeing, hmm. dyeing a fabric right. the other day. And I wish I could remember the exact numbers. It was something like th- for every one kilo of fabric, dyed fabric, it's three kilos of chemicals. It was something crazy like wow. that that's required. I must find that podcast and put that's the link at the start. So one of the things we can do is buy gear that's that's used, but if you're buying new gear, buy bomber new gear. Buy so gear lasts, that's going to last you yeah. and repair it. I mean, in the surf world, which I grew up doing, fixing your own surfboard and fixing your own wetsuit was kind of core. It was like, oh man, that's cool. You figured it out. We work with brands. Sitka Gear has a re- has a repair policy. Arcteryx has a repair policy. Uh, Mountain Hardware has a repair policy. Patagonia has a repair policy. Nerona has a repair policy. Like we need to be supporting brands that not only make good gear, but they make it well and responsibly and have repair policies because gear should be lasting us more than the season. So I think that's huge. Um, and I would say elevate these conversations. That'd probably be my last tip. Have the conversations. Yeah. Have the conversations. Talk to your friends. Get educated. Be be vulnerable. Like, I mean, I think one of the things I enjoy about everybody that's involved with Modern Huntsman is we recognize we're not the world's experts. Every time we read somebody's work or read a you know a new paper, we're probably educated a little bit more on the topic. I would say get educated. Be open to learning. Ask questions. Be flexible. Don't dig your heels in on a topic. Africa, I'm total newbie on Africa. I'm excited to learn more. And I have an open mind about it. I think that's huge. Like if we want wildlife issues, climate change, plastics, salmon, whatever the issue is that might be top of mind for you and your community, talk about it. Because the more it's talked about, the more it'll be relevant. And the more that's relevant, the more politicians and businesses and people and really yeah, are, are shifting based on how we're acting. Charles, thank you. It's been great to podcast with you in person. Yes, I um, love it. Great to meet uh, you and your wife and your little puppy as yeah, well. Yeah, Canute, little man who actually did not bark once. He, he didn't, I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been great. Um, I'm going to have to pack all this stuff up because otherwise I'm going to miss my plane. <laughs> yes, well, thank you for coming. And thanks, Tyler, for facilitating. Woo! Woo! And that's it for another two weeks. By the time this next podcast comes out, I should be back in Scotland with my brother. Things should be a little bit more back to normal. Uh, We'll be recording a handful of podcasts back at home, probably trying to cover uh, a couple of the news topics. I know that there has been um, a lot of things happening which we probably need to turn our attention to. I have been writing about them. Uh, The latest... Um, news regarding the import ban of hunting trophies specifically from Africa for appendix one and two, CITES appendix one and two species um, is the subject of an article that I've just written for Sporting Rifle, which should be out within two weeks of this podcast going out. So if you want to dig into that, go and pick up a copy of Sporting Rifle uh, if you're in the UK and you'll be able to read about that. But we will also cover it on the show If you would like to contact the show, it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. If you'd like to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, that is very much appreciated and it makes a big difference for people being able to find the show. Uh, And with all that said, I think I will leave you to it for two weeks. Don't forget to enter the competition. Tell us what that animal sound was at the start and you will be in with a chance to win Volume 3 Modern Huntsman all about wildlife management. And if you haven't got your hands on a copy 
of Volume 3 and you haven't won one yet, go and buy one. You can get them on the website, thepacebrothers.com or over on the Modern Huntsman website. If you do end up winning one, you've already bought one. It makes a great Christmas gift. In fact, they make great Christmas gifts. And Volume 4 will be available um, in the next couple of weeks. Pre-orders are already on the website. So get your pre-order in to guarantee that you get the first shipment that goes out. Uh, I look forward to bringing you all a new show in two weeks' time. 